Good afternoon. Welcome to our webinar presentation today on hemophilia treatment and cost management with Dr. Stacy Bourne. My name is Jenny Fisher, and I'm a managed care specialist with Summit Reinsurance. Before we get started, a little bit of general information. The audience will be on mute, and at the end of the session, there will be a few minutes for you to be able to type in your questions and send them in. This program has been approved for one hour of continuing education credit for case managers through the Commission for Case Manager Certification. You must complete the evaluation after the program is over to receive your credit. Our speaker today is Dr. Stacey Boring. She is the founder and chief medical officer of Advanced Medical Strategies, also known as AMS. AMS is a healthcare payer services company providing claims integrity analytics and decision support solutions. AMS also conducts aggregate and specific claim audits, as well as reinsurance, MGU, and TPA reviews. Dr. Borens is the architect of AMS's Predict Suite of Solutions, and this includes Predict DX, Predict RX, and Implant DX. Dr. Borens is the outsourced medical director for several companies within the stop loss industry. She is a much respected and much in demand speaker at seminars worldwide for claims professionals. She has appeared on a multitude of educational panels, workshops, podcasts, and hosts her own webinars on a regular basis. Through AMS, Dr. Borns has streamlined the way payers all across the healthcare spectrum can predict and manage costs associated with trigger diagnoses. Dr. Borns earned her medical degree from Hahnemann University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She completed her internal medicine residency at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital, also in Philadelphia, and she holds a BA in biology from Brandeis University. Please welcome Dr. Stacey Bourne. Great. Thank you so much, Jenny. I'll imagine you all clapping for me on the other end of the phone while I speak into the air on this lovely Wednesday afternoon. I hope you are all doing well. We're going to spend the next hour talking about hemophilia and a little bit about it, um, how to manage it. I have some claims to show you and a couple of super interesting on the horizon um, treatments or cures that actually are in some clinical trials now for hemophilia. So um, as Jenny mentioned, you, you are all on mute. So you, I can't hear you. So if you do have a question, please type it in and I will try to answer them as I go um, and as I see them. And if for some reason I don't get to them, then I certainly will make sure that I get to um, a few of them at the, at the end of the, the session. So we're going to be toggling back and forth between the slides and our predict suite um, as I show you some claims examples with some of the, the hemophilia drugs. So, um, so just be aware of that, that I'm going to be jumping in and out of the, the slide presentation. And with that, let's start the show. In theory, let's start the show. There we go. Okay, so let's just start with the basics. What is hemophilia? So hemophilia is a rare bleeding disorder in which the blood does not clot normally. This is typically inherited, and so often you will see multiple patients within a given family with a disorder. And in fact, any of you who have claims experiences know sometimes you'll see brothers or um, other types of siblings, father-daughter, mother-son, where you will have claims within the same family, um, and that can certainly drive up the overall total claims cost when you're looking at a single employer group, say, with, um, with a family that happens to have hemophilia. There are two main types of hemophilia. There's hemophilia A and hemophilia B. 
we tend to focus more on hemophilia A simply because it is more common. That is what is considered classic hemophilia, and it's a genetic disorder that's caused by a missing or defective factor eight, which is a clotting protein. Um, and although that is typically passed down from parents to children, about one third of cases are caused by a spontaneous mutation, which, which is a change in the, in the gene. So although we typically do think of it as inherited, there is a significant amount of cases where it actually is considered um, spontaneous. Now hemophilia B is a factor nine deficiency. It is also known as Christmas disease. Um, actually named after the, um, the gentleman who founded the disorder. Um, and it is a genetic disorder that's caused by a missing or defective factor nine, which also is a clotting protein. So as I said, there are the two types of hemophilia. Hemophilia A is the predominant type. And as you can see from the slide, 90% of hemophilia patients have um, classic hemophilia or hemophilia A. It is only 10% of the population that, uh, of the hemophilia population that has hemophilia B. So the vast majority of claims that we tend to see um, truly revolve around hemophilia A. The disease is classified as mild, moderate, and severe, and that corresponds to the, the level of factor that is um, present. And so, Normal plasma levels of factor eight range anywhere from 50% to actually 150%, which I know sounds strange that it's more than 100%, but uh, if you don't know, that's the way medicine works. It's never really black and white. There's always a little bit of gray there. Um, the largest portion of patients have the most severe disease. So when you look at severe, those are factor levels that are less than 1%. That is 60% of your cases. Who have, um, who have hemophilia will fall into the severe. So you can see that your claims end up being much more severe because the largest population of hemophiliacs, hemophiliacs have the most severe level of the, of the disease. Um, so mild disease would be anywhere between factor levels of six to 49%, and that's 25% of cases. Moderate um, factor levels between one and 5%, are only 15% um, of cases. So now patients with mild hemophilia A, they generally experience bleeding really only after a serious injury, trauma, or surgery. And in many cases, mild hemophilia isn't even diagnosed until an injury or surgery or even a tooth extraction sort of results in this prolonged bleeding. You may not even see the first episode in mild hemophiliacs until um, adulthood. Women who have mild hemophilia often experience very, very heavy um, menstrual periods, um, or they can have a, a hemorrhage after childbirth. Moderate hemophiliacs also tend to have bleeding episodes after um, injuries as well, but they can also have bleeds that occur without any obvious cause, typically referred to as, as spontaneous bleeding um, episodes. So they may not present as well until either late adolescent or, or adulthood. Severe hemophiliacs have, as, in, as you can see, less than 1% of factor in the blood. Those uh, patients will experience very frequent spontaneous bleeding episodes, often into the joint or muscles. They will, they will be the ones who have um, terrible uh, hospital stays 
following um, a, a trauma or some other sort of, of injury because the bleeding becomes really, really difficult to control. It's fairly common. The incidence is one in 5,000 live births. So that is um, not an uncommon uh, disease to actually see. And simply because of the way it's passed down um, chromosomally, it occurs really in males with rare exception. Now, I will tell you, I, I have seen many a claim actually with, with female hemophiliacs, but I do think the business that we're in and the, the type of claims we tend to see really lend themselves to the, the strange and unusual. And so I think we end up selecting out those particular types of, of cases. So how do we treat hemophilia? Well, the vast majority of treatment really is um, outpatient. The therapy is, is typically given at home by the patient or the family. And really hospitalization generally, tends to be generally reserved for either severe or um, life-threatening bleeds. And there are comprehensive hemophilia care centers all across the country that actually provide ideal standard of care management. Um, and the list is fairly extensive, so instead of actually listing it all out for you, I just elected to, to give you the, um, the, the link. And the, the slides can certainly be provided to you after the, after the presentation, should you, should you want them. Um, again, I think the business that we tend to be in, a lot of what we see are these terrible inpatient claims, and I'm certainly gonna show you some examples of them, but patients who are well controlled and getting prophylactic factor, the the claims cost, although maybe in the millions of dollars because of the amount of factor that they need and how many times a week they need to give it, um, will will be seen as a as an outpatient because it it can just be given um, by themselves. Uh, every so often, you will need to have some home home health care, particularly if the child is young enough and the family is uncomfortable. Um, but those costs tend to be truly minuscule compared to the actual cost of the drug. And we are definitely going to talk later about the cost of the, the drugs. I think um, some of you will be surprised to see how much hemophilia drugs actually cost versus what you are actually billed for them. And we'll talk about the benchmarks that, that we actually use with that. So, so treatment typically falls into three different categories. There's on-demand for bleeding episode, there's what we call perioperative management, and then is, there's what we call routine prophylaxis. So the first two categories, which are on-demand and perioperative management, those are gonna be acute and finite therapies. And that will depend on the location or the severity of the bleed or the type of surgery being done. But it's typically gonna have a defined start point and a defined end point because it will stop once the patient either stops bleeding or the perioperative period is over. So you will typically see for patients undergoing surgery, you'll get one or two doses um, pre-surgical and then a certain amount of either doses or days um, after the surgery is done just to prevent any uh, post-operative bleeding. And then the same thing, you will simply start the factor when the patient comes in with the bleeding episode and then it continues for a number of days, depending on when the bleeding actually stops. So although they're acute and finite, sometimes they can be longer than you would expect. You know, we've seen hospital stays for upwards of 30 days where they were trying to get a, um, a significant bleed under control for these patients. But overall, 
the, the hospitalizations tend to be short, but inordinately expensive simply because of how the, the factor is charged. Routine prophylaxis is exactly as it sounds. That is going to be chronic indefinite therapy, and it's recommended for all patients with severe hemophilia A and hemophilia B because you want to obviously prevent them from having any bleeding episodes. They'll, they'll be the ones that are hardest to control when that occurs. And so that is just given life, I wouldn't say lifelong, because interestingly, what we tend to see with, um, with children who have hemophilia A more so than, than B, at some point during their lives around adolescent, the need for factor actually tends to become far less. And nobody's really sure why that is, and they, but they tend to develop a little bit more circulating factor eight, or they become less prone to, to bleeding. And so for us, it tends to be a much more rare case where we're seeing an adult who has a significant um, need for routine prophylaxis, um, and it's more the, the children that tend to be the high dollar claims with the routine prophylaxis. Um, there are different types of medications that are used to treat hemophilia A. So there are factor replacement products, there are anti-inhibitor or bypassing products, and then there's also DDAVP um, and aminocaproic acid. Um, I'm not going to spend really much time, if really any, um, other than for me to just kind of give you a global overview on DDAVP and aminocaproic acid because they are um, very inexpensive and they're not the, the problems in terms of claims. Um, the main ones are going to be your factor replacement products and anti-inhibitors. So just to give you a little background, so inhibitors are actually antibodies the immune system develops because it sees the infused factor eight, the infused clotting factor, truly as a foreign substance that actually needs to be destroyed. So um, it's, it's almost what you would see in an autoimmune type of situation, although the antibodies are now actually directed against the infused clotting factor. So the antibodies are proteins that then go ahead and eat up the activated factor before it actually has time to stop the bleeding. So what happens is, a ble the bleeding is extremely hard to control in someone with hemophilia who has the inhibitors um, because it takes far more factor in order to get the same effect as somebody who does not actually have an inhibitor. A person with an inhibitor will face more bleeding, um, more pain, um, simply because the, the, the treatment with the factor doesn't work. So they tend to have more complications of the joint bleeding and other locations of bleeding than patients who do not have inhibitors. So some of them will go on to require joint replacements because they have such frequent bleeds and um, high volume bleeds into something like the knee or the shoulder or the hip. And so you will see those joints that then require um, replacement because they end up with permanent joint damage. Now it is possible to get rid of inhibitors using um, a technique that's called immune tolerance induction or ITI. Uh, again, I'm not sure how, um, how many folks on my call are clinical, so I'm trying to make sure I cover all the basics for anybody who's not clinical. For those of you who are clinical, feel free to take a nap while I describe some of these other things, and then come on back when we start talking about the less basic clinical things for you. <laughs> so immune tolerance um, induction requires very specialized um, medical expertise, and it can really take a long time. And so what, what we use first is 
um, are, are the drugs that are the bypassing agents that can be used to work around the inhibitors and actually help the blood clot. The two most common of those are Novo7 and, um, and FIBA. So I can see on my screen somebody's hand is raised, but I can't actually help you when your hand is raised if you have a question. Actually, all I can really do is, is put your hand down. So if you do have a question, please type it into the box so I can actually see it. Because <laughs> I, I don't know whose hand is raised and I, I can't actually un unmute you anyway. <laughs> so, um, so just a couple quick words about DDAVP and aminocoproic acid. So DDAVP, which is desmopressin acetate, that's the synthetic version of vasopressin, which is a, a natural antidiuretic hormone that we have in our bodies that actually helps to stop the bleeding. So in patients with mild hemophilia, it can be used for joint and muscle bleeds, for bleeding in some of the mucous membranes of the nose and mouth, and before or, or after surgery. Um, it comes in both an injectable form and a nasal spray, and it's only used for hemophilia A. It is not used for hemophilia B. Now, aminocoproic acid is a drug that is, that is um, indicated, or its mechanism is to prevent the breakdown of blood clots. So it doesn't help to form clots. What it, what it does is once the blood starts clotting, it actually helps keep that clot together. So it's often recommended before a dental procedure or to treat nose and mouth bleeds. Um, it is typically given orally as a tablet or um, a liquid. And the guidelines recommend that you give a dose of clotting factor first to form the clot, and then aminocoproic acid is given to preserve the clot and prevent it from being broken down prematurely. So hopefully that gives you, you know, some information um, about it. We're going to talk a lot more about the different types of factor replacement products. There are many of them. Um, we're not going to go through each of them, obviously, in, in detail, um, but there are several, and I'll, I'll show you a little bit more about them. And the anti-inhibitors, as I mentioned, are going to be your Novo7 and, um, and FIBA. So, so there are a ton of different products to treat hemophilia. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump out of my slides for a second, and I'm gonna show you, um, this is actually our, um, our subscription-based software for diseases and, and drugs. So what I'm gonna do is go into the hemophilia entry just to show you um, all of the different products that we have listed. There, there are several others as well, um, we've elected to kind of keep them out of the system because they're just not used as frequently. And the, any of the available factor products are perfectly fine to use when bleeding needs to be controlled or prevented. There really aren't any specific guidelines that recommend one particular product over another. When you start to talk about routine prophylaxis, convenience actually becomes a factor. No pun intended, actually. <laughs> Truly, there really was no pun intended there. Um, the, the, the newer products are these longer-acting products, and so some of them only need to be given, say, once a week or even once every 10 days, where the older products need to be given three or four times a week. So you can imagine from a convenience standpoint for a patient, that makes a big difference. From a cost perspective for you, honestly, there really isn't any difference, and, and you'll see why. Some of the longer-acting products, even though they're given less frequently, are actually more expensive. And so the net result is 
although you have less doses in a given year, your, your, your costs really end up being the same. So right here, we're looking at all the different drug therapies. Um, these are just listed in alphabetical order for you. And you, so you can see there are a ton of them. Advate is an old one. Um, uh, Adenovate is a little bit of a, a newer one. Um, the DDAVP, as I, I mentioned there, is, is there as well. FIBA are the anti-inhibitors. There's Helixate. Penlibra is one that was actually FDA approved either um, a year or two years ago. Humate P. So there's upwards of, I want to say, 20 different drugs. And when you look at how much they actually cost per international unit for the most part, you can see they're not terribly expensive. And I will, I'll, when we go into the claims, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of give you our benchmarks and what our risk threshold actually means. But you can see they're not terribly expensive on a per international unit basis. It's, it really is, has to do with how much somebody needs and how much inflation you actually can see with, um, with these, these patients. So if somebody is getting, um, let's just say Advate, which is an older one, for a bleed or a perioperative management, what we consider to be really the highest cost you should see for that are $70,000. And we know that's not what you see. And again, that has a lot to do with inflation. What we would like you to see is somewhere in the neighborhood of our cost projection, which is about $44,000. And then we have some um, uh, pharmacy benefit management benchmarks. Um, you can see what you can get it for through a PBM. It's about 37, and then what you can get it through for through a, for a transparent BBM is $34,000. But the reality is when they're being given in an acute situation for a bleed, you're, you're not getting these through the PBM. They're going through the medical benefit. They're an inpatient type of, of care. So although access is um, uh, available and that's the fact that drug is available, you're not really able to, to take advantage of that. But we just don't ever see those types of claims. And particularly if you look at the routine prophylaxis, where it's, um, where it's ongoing. And not all of the, the preparations are indicated for routine prophylaxis. So you have to make sure when you're looking at these that they are being used in the manner in which they're supposed to be given. In this case, Advate is used for routine prophylaxis. Um, and you can see that even the highest costs that we expect to see are pretty significant. We would expect a patient who's on Advate, a very old drug, um, who's an adult who needs routine prophylaxis, the highest cost you should see is about $1.3 million. You know, we've seen claims of $5 million, $10 million. I'm going to show you an insane claim, which is the highest claim I've ever seen, never mind for hemophiliacs, but just in general, but I'm going to show you that in a little bit. Um, kids are going to be a little bit lower because all of these drugs are weight-based, and so that makes a, um, a big difference. They weigh less, so they need less factor, um, so they're going to cost less. This does not take into account a patient who may have developed an inhibitor because those are going to be additional costs other than just the, the factor. So it's expensive even it, when it's reasonably charged. The, the, the problem really becomes when things are, are unreasonably charged. Um, and so, as I said, there really isn't much um, difference in terms of which ones you decide to actually go ahead and use. And the choice of product most often comes down to um, three or four different reasons. Um, the first is safety, the safety of the, the actual um, product itself. Uh, we don't really worry too much anymore about blood, blood clotting factors 
um, like we did back in the days when things weren't screened for HIV and hepatitis and, and those types of things. The, the blood supply is, is fairly clean. So safety is probably um, equal across the board. Purity, there's different levels of, of purity for the, the individual clotting factors. The cost of them, but again, cost, when we're talking about cost, has to do more with um, how you're going to be charged. It's not really that big of a, um, uh, a factor that the physicians take into account because they believe, and they are correct, that there really isn't much of a cost difference among the various products. And that's true when you're looking at different benchmarks, but in terms of how they're going to charge or how a facility is going to charge, that's really where you see the, um, see the, the difference. And then the final thing is going to be the risk of occurrence of inhibitory um, antibodies. So some patients are a little more predisposed. Some products in a given patient may be a little bit more predisposed. So, so uh, physicians will take that into account as they actually go and um, decide on, on what product. So those are the types of things that you're going to be, to be looking at. Um, monoclonal antibody, just as a general rule for you, monoclonal antibody purified or recumbent um, factor products are actually preferred over fresh frozen plasma, cryoprecipitate, or prothrombin complex concentrates. Um, so just as a general rule, we tend to prefer antibody purified um, or recombinant factor products for, for these patients. So, the, and again, the, the governing bodies for hemophilia are these, um, are these two. They're the ones that are most common. So that's the National Hemophilia um, Foundation and the World Hemophilia Federation. And again, current guidelines do not recommend a specific first-line product. So it's not like when you're looking at a claim, you need to review whether um, a specific drug was given before another drug. That's not really a big, um, a big uh, thing to take into consideration. A thing to take into consideration, though, is when you see the use of a drug called Obizer, and um, hopefully we'll have time, I'll be able to show you a little bit about that. Um, Obizer is indicated for acquired hemophilia, not hemophilia A, not congenital hemophilia A. So, and there's a difference between the, the, the two of them. And so when you see Obizer, that's when you definitely want to, and, and it's very expensive. So that's the time when you want to make sure that you do some sort of medical necessity evaluation to make sure that the patient has acquired and not congenital hemophilia A. So this is a very, very busy slide, but again, um, if you are interested in having the slides, I wanted to make sure that you had the all of the various products that are out there. Um, this is uh, basically as up to date as last week. I went through and made sure that I, I wasn't missing anything. Um, this gives you the different types of products from intermediate purity, um, whether they're recombinant, um, whether they have um, you know, some other special factor like um, this anti-hemophilia factor single chain with a fistula, um, certain humanized bio specific monoclonal antibody is Hemlibra. That is the, the, the newest one that's actually out there. So, um, so this is really just the, the listing. You can see there's many, many products for you. Same thing for hemophilia B, um, less products than hemophilia A, but actually had a little bit of a surge in the past couple of years in terms of some of the, um, some new drugs actually getting um, FDA approved. This 
um, Xfinity and Rebinin um, are fit for, uh, for hemophilia B. So we went through a little phase where we started to see uh, some new products for hemophilia A and hemophilia B, but we haven't really seen any in the, uh, I want to say in the past year. Hemlibra was really the, the last one that was done, and I think that was back in the fall of 2017. So somebody has a question. Uh, somebody asked, what resources can I access to determine if charges for recombinant factor products are reasonable? Um, that's a, a great question. Uh, our product is obviously designed to, to do that, to let you see uh, the highest you should be seeing as well as what the cost projections are. There are certainly other sources out there that can give you things, things like um, average wholesale price and wholesale acquisition cost. You can get that through Redbook. But you're, you know, then you would really need to figure out your own algorithm in order to determine what would be reasonable for that um, particular uh, particular dose. Um, we we use a series of different benchmarks. We don't just limit ours to AWP and wholesale acquisition costs. So um, you want to make sure that whatever you decide to do to look at UCR is something that actually. Um, is is defensible and that you feel you feel comfortable with you know we spend a lot of time kind of vetting the different things that are actually um actually out there so um so hopefully that answered you know your your questions uh, if not you can uh, you can always email me later <laughs> so these are the um like i said these are the the factor nine products for you and again a listing so that you can actually have them all right, back to the slides. So the bypassing products, these are the ones that I mentioned to you. These are used in both hemophilia A and hemophilia B, and those are Novo7 um, as well as FIBA. And what I've done is give you um, sort of the, the, the standard dosing for them. So Novo7 is weight-based at uh, 90 micrograms. That's, that's micrograms, not milligrams. Um, so it's different. Micrograms per kilogram every two hours, basically until the bleeding is stopped or the treatment doesn't work. And FIBA, um, that is first line when you have factor eight inhibitors that are greater than five Bethesda units. That's just the unit of measure to look at inhibitors. That's just the kind of standard thing, like when you're looking at the hemoglobin, it's grams per deciliter. Bethesda units are what we use to measure inhibitors. Typical dose, um, th this comes in units, so it's 50 to 100 units per kilogram per dose. The maximum daily dose, though, are going to be 200 units per kilogram um, per day. So for patients, uh, in patients who develop inhibitors, it is uh, it's much more common to see it in hemophilia A than hemophilia B. It occurs in 25 to 30% of patients who have severe hemophilia A. Um, and again, the bleeding is just much more difficult to control, and you get an increase in bleeding events um, in patients who convert from, say, a mild or moderate to a severe state with continued and in increasing frequency of bleeds over time. In hemophilia B, again, much, much less common to have inhibitors there. Only 3 to 5% um, of cases have, um, have inhibitors. The most are what we call high responders, where they have Bethesda units that are over that threshold of five. Um, immune tolerance induction is much less successful in patients with hemophilia B who develop inhibitors. And it can be associated with anaphylaxis, which is a severe allergic reaction, and also something called nephrotic syndrome, um, which can lead to um, uh, end-stage renal disease. So you have to 
also consider the possibility that these patients could end up on dialysis if they if they're hemophilia B patients who develop um, uh, inhibitors. So, and then as I mentioned before, you know, we have that immune tolerance induction, which requires really the routine administration of the deficient factor to basically reset or tolerize the immune system. And so the the replace you give replacement therapy, you give immunosuppressants, there's plasmapheresis that can be used in very refractory cases. Um, you can see Celsept being given, gamma globulin um, as well. Rituxin has been used with sort of variable success in high responders, and that actually helps to decrease the production um, of inhibitors. So with multiple treatment needs, patients who have inhibitors, those are your ones that are probably going to be most costly. And um, I, I had originally used to note that those could be anywhere between two and five million dollars, but we are seeing cases in excess of five million dollars. So I would say, you know, I'd probably bump that up where, you know, the high watermark for something like that is going to be, um, uh, you know, probably about seven million dollars there for that. So the next couple of slides, again, I'm not going to go through them again in detail. These are, are really meant for you guys to, to take home. I just wanted to give you um, some general guidelines of how factor eight and factor nine are actually given. Now, again, the, the caveat is that the dose and the duration of the treatment totally depends on the severity of the factor eight deficiency, the location, the extent of the bleeding, and really the patient's clinical condition. So, you know, you need to have very careful control of replacement therapy. Um, it's super important in cases of, say, major surgery or, or life-threatening, you know, bleeding episodes. So these are what you would see for, say, minor, um, moderate, and major to life-threatening hemorrhage. And um, I, uh, I did not put on the, the slides kind of what falls into those, but, um, uh, you know, minor hemorrhage, you're, you know, you're, think of things like, you know, tooth extractions and, and small minor bleeds. Um, major bleeds are going to be intracerebral hemorrhages, um, you know, bleeds in the brain. Retroperitoneal hemorrhages, those are basically bleeds into the, the back of, of the soft tissue. Um, moderate hemorrhages are going to be in the joints. There's, there's a ton of, of different examples for them, um, but that just kind of gives you, gives you an idea, and those are the, the general guidelines. And then I also have the guidelines for uh, perioperative management, um, so minor surgery, and uh, divided into minor and major surgery and how you, it should be given, what factor level you want to achieve um, in terms of the, the factor that's being given. That's what we're actually monitoring is how high we can get the, that particular factor level. Again, very, very general guidelines. The, the intensity of the therapy is probably going to depend on the type of surgery, the post-operative, you know, regimen. Um, if bleeding isn't controlled with these adequate doses, then you're going to be looking for the presence of um, an inhibitor, and it may not really be possible or practical to try and control the bleeding um, with simple factor when, when the inhibitor titers are, are greater than 10 Bethesda units. When you get that high, it becomes fairly impossible to control the bleeding. So you do have to make sure that you, you're paying attention to that. <clears throat> and then routine prophylaxis, these are your chronic um, indefinites. Um, there's a variety of different products. They're short-acting and long-acting. So the short-acting products, these are the ones where the patients are going to be given the factor 
every other day. And then the longer acting products stretch out a lot further. And you can see, so something like Covaltri, you're giving two to three times per week. And then um, something like Hemlibra, which was the one that was just most recently FDA approved, that's once weekly. Um, and it, it, the dosage just changes in terms of the, the weight base. It's, it's, it's weekly um, ongoing, but it's three milligrams per kilogram for the first four weeks, and then you drop it down to the 1.5 milligrams per kilogram weekly. So um, adenovate is you know, twice a week. So there's really a, a whole bunch of different ranges. So again, when you see these drugs, whether it's in a medical management situation or say an underwriting situation or a claim situation, you wanna make sure that they are being given the, in the manner in which they're meant to be given. You don't want long-acting products being given every other day, and by the same token, short-acting products simply cannot be given, you know, once a week. Patients will, you know, end up, um, end up with, uh, with bleeds. So, uh, so somebody asked a question about, do most plans consider immune tolerance induction experimental? Um, and the answer to that is no. It is a very, very well generally accepted um, way to try and uh, get hemophiliacs under control, um, particularly the, the ones who continue to have bleeding episodes despite massive amounts of, of factor. Um, and the secondary question to that is, what is the target level and how long would you treat, or as they like to say, when to call it quits? <laughs> um, that's going to be very individualized um, depending on the patient. Um, there, there are different target levels of a percentage of factor that you want circulating in the blood to see whether or not the patient's going to bleed. Um, so you're, I, I, you're typically going to be shooting for, you know, the, and I know it sounds crazy, like the difference between, you know, less than 1% where you have bleeds all the time and greater than 1% where the, the patients may not bleed, but it can be that small of a difference. So some patients may be okay, say at 1.2%, but other patients, you may need to see 5% of circulating factor. We're not really looking to get patients back up to completely normal levels of, of factor. That's, that's just pretty unrealistic. Um, so it, when you would call it quits, I, I think would be, again, it's going to be very individualized to know when it, it either clearly isn't working for somebody or they're not really able to, to tolerate it. So, um, so I hope that actually helps uh, answer your, your question. Um, prophylaxis for hemophiliacs is started at age one. So one-year-old, this is when you're going to start to see prophylaxis. It continues basically, as I mentioned earlier, through adolescence. Um, most patients will start after the age of three to establish um, a frequency of bleeding episodes and for central line maintenance um, in, a, in a child, in an older child, um, but you, you will see prophylaxis beginning um, at one. And then you have to look at the cost-benefit analysis in terms of the overall reduction in factor use and reducing morbidity and mortality when you start prophylactic factor in childhood. Um, there certainly is a, is a trade-off. When you are doing routine prophylaxis, the goal here in terms of the factor level is to maintain a level above 1% to 2%. Um, and so if you're using um, a shorter acting, then it tends to be on the lower side where you're just looking for above 1% because you're obviously giving the, the factor fairly frequently. So you have a little bit more um, margin for error staying closer to that, that 1%. <clears throat> so, so 
So this is the same thing that I just meant that we just did for factor eight that we're doing for factor nine um, in terms of bleeding management. There's minor, moderate, and major. Um, and that just gives you the, the different factor levels that you want to raise it to and the, the, the actual weight-based method and how many, um, how many doses somebody may actually require. So again, can't stress this enough, it's going to be very individualized with a, with a given patient. So it really is going to just depend on where the bleed is, um, how intense the bleed is, and um, how well they respond to the, to the factor. And then same thing as we did before. This is for perioperative management, general guidelines that you would want to maintain, um, and the duration based on the, the site um, of the of the surgery. So there's minor surgeries, moderate moderate surgeries, and um, and major surgeries as well. And then same thing for routine prophylaxis for um, for um, sorry my brain my brain just went blank for hemophilia B. <laughs> sorry, we're on hemophilia B. Um, there are very short acting regimens, and then there are also longer acting regimens here. So when you're looking at the shorter acting regimens, um, there's a variety of different dosing that you can give. No dose is incorrect. Um, it's going to be dependent upon some of the different products. And then there are longer acting products, and you can see something like Alprolix, the first one. You can give uh, that once every 10 days. You can give 100 units per kilogram um, once every 10 days. Some of the other ones... Um, or even every two weeks, like Adelvion in a well-controlled patient, that can be every two weeks. And then something like Ricubus, you would actually see um, twice weekly. Same thing, the goal is here is to maintain factor nine levels above one to 2%. Prophylaxis is typically started at age one, but you may see um, it more commonly started at age three due to the exact same reasons that I, I mentioned before. And again, we're sort of looking at the, the cost benefit um, uh, analysis here when you're when you're looking at routine prophylaxis. So that's to give you a little bit of a, an overview of, of the different treatment. Um, again, I'm happy to send the the slides to to Ginny for distribution um, after the the sessions for anybody who who wants it. Just let us know. So I want to just talk um, about a couple of exciting things before I, I move into a, just a couple claims to to show you guys. So. Uh, you, you may be familiar with gene therapy um, that's kind of all of the rage right now. There was a drug that was uh, approved not too long ago that was the first genetic uh, gene therapy treatment, for something called Luxterna, for inherited types of uh, retinal dystrophy that's, for, um, that's in the eye and, and patients who, go, um, who can go blind from that. So gene therapy is something that is very exciting for researchers now to, to be looking at. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with CRISPR and there's a ton of things out there, but I focused obviously on hemophilia since that's what we're talking about today. And there are actually, there were two studies that were done looking at true cures for hemophilia. So the first is for hemophilia A. And this was, um, these, are, these results were actually published in the December 2017 um, issue of the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, this particular trial was funded by the pharmaceutical company um, Biomarin, just so you know. So this was a very small trial, and it was done in the UK. It was 13 patients, only 13, that's super tiny, um, patients who had hemophilia A. And they were given a single intravenous factor VIII gene copy um, that was delivered 
via this, uh, what we call a codon-optimized um, adeno-associated virus. And so these viruses act as vectors. They're very, very tiny, and you can use them to carry something like a gene copy like this, and it will penetrate the various mechanisms within a cell and be able to get where you want to actually deliver the, the missing gene. Because again, remember from the beginning, the problem with hemophilia A is either the lack of a gene or it's a defective gene. And so what this trial looked at is giving a perfectly normal copy of a factor VIII gene. And then what they did is they followed these patients for 19 months and looked at what happened. And so at 12 months, all 13 patients were actually able to stop any previous factor infusions. 11 patients showed normal or near normal levels of clotting factor. So you basically eradicated hemophilia A um, in the 11 patients. The bleeding rate fell from 16 episodes a year to one episode a year, which is huge. Again, when you're talking not only about cost, but certainly the clinical aspect and the, the morbidity and mortality of a patient, having less bleeds is, is something you certainly want to look at. It excluded any patients with inhibitors. Um, so of course the question is, will this be as effective as, um, as, it, as it was shown in this in patients with inhibitors? We don't know the answer to that question just yet. And the costs were uh, about 1.5 million. When you, I, I did some research and they looked at the estimates of giving this gene therapy. Now, I know that that sounds like a lot for say a single injection of a gene, but again, you need to look at the cost effectiveness of giving, of correcting the disorder versus indefinite prophylactic factor eight, right? 1.5 million a year is a good thing when you, for prophylaxis. So if you only have to in, take that hit once, that's much better than 1.5 million, 5 million, 7 million, there's, you know, the numbers certainly go up from, from there. So the 1.5 million, um, honestly, for a true cure, really isn't all that much to, to pay. And I think we would all happily pay that to not have the ongoing costs associated with hemophilia, and patients certainly would, would want to have that to not have the ongoing bleeding episodes that they, they have with it. So again, small study, certainly looking at some confirmatory studies um, you know, out there. Same thing. This was a, for hemophilia B. This was a small trial that was done in the U.S. These results were also published in the same December 2017 um, issue of the New England Journal of Medicine. This study was funded by the pharmaceutical company Spark Therapeutics. You should definitely keep an eye on Spark. They are out there doing some really interesting and kind of cool, amazing things with gene therapy. So, um, you know, I don't know, put a Google alert on them or, or try to follow them at all because they're, they're doing some really interesting things out there. So it was funded by Spark as well as, um, as, well as Pfizer. This was, again, a small U.S. trial with 10 patients um, who had hemophilia B. Now, they had actually tried previous gene therapy um, trials in patients who had hemophilia B, and those really didn't go very well. And that was either because the patient's immune system destroyed the modified cells or the cells didn't make enough factor IX. So this was really a, a breakthrough. Again, tiny, tiny little study. Um, this was a single injection directly into the liver where it was an engineered factor IX um, what they call a transgene, same thing. It was carried by a little vector virus to get into the, the liver and see, you know, really 
um, what happened. The, the researchers actually gave the patient's liver cells the gene for an unusually potent version of factor IX. Um, and again, as I mentioned, it was uh, ferried there by the, the vector virus. So the, they followed these patients for 18 months. And the results, um, again, pretty astounding. Um, on average, the liver started making 34% of normal factor, uh, normal levels of factor IX, uh, which is really very, very good. You're looking at patients who basically would fall into the mild to moderate disease at that point. Nine out of the 10 patients had no bleeding episodes. And eight of the 10 patients no longer needed prophylactic factor IX, which was you know, truly um, amazing. Um, two patients did have the side effect of having elevated liver function tests that resolved with steroids. They did not go on to have cirrhosis. They weren't patients who needed a, a liver transplant. The cost, um, nothing really out there on cost for this particular one. I can't imagine um, that it wouldn't be similar to what you would see with hemophilia A, except for the caveat that hemophilia B is so much more rare. Uh, the patient population is going to be less. And then unfortunately, when you're talking about uh, less of a patient population from a pharmaceutical perspective, there is less of an opportunity to recoup the research and development costs. So it's possible that it could be um, significantly higher than the, the hemophilia A gene therapy, um, but I'm really just speculating. We just, we just don't know. Um, so somebody had a question about, is it reasonable to keep providers to FDA-approved dosages for factors? I have some that are double, et cetera. Um, I guess using the word reasonable, yes, I would say it's reasonable to hold them to FDA-approved dosages for factor. However, again, medicine not being black and white, the caveat would be there certainly can be patients who require more than the FDA-approved dosing for the factor, but the question becomes why is that? And if it's proven that they do in fact need it, that it's medically necessary, that they are more well controlled on a higher dose, that's something you're going to want to take into account with, you know, to like an, uh, an unlabeled type of, of dosing situation. So if it's working, then it may be reasonable. Now, this particular person is saying that they've seen, they've had some that are double. Now, now that's a lot. So the question becomes, what is going on with that patient? Are, do they need double because they have an inhibitor? And what are we doing about the inhibitor? So there's a lot of clinical questions that really then need to be answered when you're seeing um, non-labeled type of, of dosing. So, um, so I hope that answered uh, your question. So with the remaining time that we have, which is oh, just about 10 minutes or so, because I want to make sure I don't go uh, too far over for you guys. Um, I have a couple claims that I thought might be really, really uh, cool and interesting to see. Um, in the claim world, you never want to be cool and interesting. You really just want to be routine, boring, and very inexpensive. But what fun would that be on a webinar if I showed you a $2,000 hemophilia claim? No fun at all. So this is um, a, a claim that was actually sent to us to take a look at it. Um, not that long ago, actually, I want to say maybe three or four months ago, but you can see it's, it's a little over a year old. Now, I only uh, kind of gave you the screenshot of just part of the, the claim. It's important for you to know that this was an inpatient stay for a, a hemophiliac who had a bleed with inhibitors, and the total length of stay was just shy of, of 35 days. Um, so it was about 33, 34 days. The total bill charges for this claim was were 200, 200, were $22 million. It is a $22 million hemophilia claim. And you can see 
and we're going to go through this. This is where I'm going to kind of be bouncing back and forth between the, the claim and our system. So, you know, hopefully you guys can bear with me for a little bit. Um, again, it's a little bit, if your eye scrolls too fast, you might miss the fact that there are actually two different J codes here. There's 7189 and then there's 7198. And then over here, these are the, the units that were given. And then over here are the actual charges associated with that. Um, your eyes are not deceiving you. On May 26th, uh, the J code of 7189, there were 96,000 units, and that was over $1 million. And the same thing on the next day, and the same thing on the following day. So that's a, a million dollar line item, and you, which obviously is why this claim became $22 million. So let's dig a little deeper into this, okay? So the first thing, let's look at the J code, which is J7189. And keep in mind, this was um, 96,000 units. So I'm gonna just zip out of here real quick. And let's go into our system and we'll look up that J code. And let's take a look a little bit at what it is, 7189. So this is the drug Novo7, which as I told you is an anti-inhibitor for patients who have hemophilia A. Okay, so let's see what's going on with this. Now, again, this is a $22 million claim, so I'm pretty much questioning um, everything with, uh, with this. You know, um, did they need the, the anti-inhibitor? What was going on? Why, you know, why are the costs so high? There's a, a ton of questions that we can ask on this claim, but we're gonna kind of limit it just to the, um, to the two codes that are on that, that sheet. So this is treatment of hemophilia A or B, and you can see that the cost, it's given four bleeding episodes, um, and there's the, the dosing for it, and for surgical, and so in this patient, it actually had um, uh, you know, a, a significant bleed, and so it should have been 90 micrograms per, per kilogram every two hours, et cetera. And the, um, the thing to, to look at it, well, first of all, we you know we went ahead and we we verified the 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 dose that the ninety six thousand you know wasn't um, wasn't something that was crazy. Um, again, you look at the ninety six micrograms per kilogram. Let's just say that the patient weighed one hundred kilograms, which would be a two hundred and twenty pound person, which is certainly not unreasonable. Then you know ninety thousand units is not something that would be you know probably Problematic. So the 96,000 units for a heavier patient is certainly within the realm of possibility. So not really a big, uh, you know, a big problem there. Now, per microgram, this drug at its high end, what we call the AMS risk threshold, we base this on four different benchmarks. We use average wholesale price, wholesale acquisition cost, average sales price, as well as something called the NADAC, which is the national average, national average drug acquisition cost. We average those all out. We run them through an algorithm that we use for um, for our reasonable and customary audits, and that's how we come up with how how high it you you should actually be. It's what we call our fiscal red line of tolerance. So we're going to focus on this one um, simply because of the the charges. So again, this patient got ninety six thousand units. I could do this, you know, in my head just to average it out, but you guys can see my screen, so why don't we just go ahead and actually do it on the uh, the calculator here. So 96,000 units. And again, the risk threshold that we would want to see here, the most you want to pay is $4.46 per 
per microgram. And so what we would expect to see is $428,000 for the $96,000. And what we actually saw, if you remember, was over actually a million dollars. So it is extremely, extremely um, overpriced. It is extremely inflated for that particular drug. So that's a red flag, right? That's definitely a red flag. So um, somebody asked if I could speak briefly more about the ITI protocols and the length of ITI therapy. Um, I wish I could, I'm just gonna run out of time. So um, unfortunately I won't be able to, but I did wanna let you know I did see your, your question. Um, and you know, certainly if we do another one of these, I can give you a little bit more information about that. So that was J code 7189. Don't forget, we also have another J code here. Um, which is 7198. Again, you know, I don't want your eyes to um, kind of skip over that. So let's just look at what J code 7198 actually is. I have a couple of other claims examples. We're gonna run out of time. This is the actual most impressive one. So once we finish this, then um, I'll definitely let you guys, you know, get back to um, what you're doing. The other ones are just, you know, fun, but this one is probably the most fun. So this is FIBA, which is, as you recall, is the other anti-inhibitor I told you about. So a major, major red flag is why are Novo7 and FIBA being given um, to the same patient um, at the, oops, sorry, wrong one, at the, um, at the same time? Because we really shouldn't see that. You should not need or have any use for both of these inhibitors, um, you know, within anti-inhibitors within you know, a day or two of another. So that's a big red flag clinically, and I would wanna know why the patient was on both FIBA and um, Novo7 at the same time. So let's take a look at this in, in terms of cost, right? So, oops, sorry, not, it doesn't really matter. I'm in routine prophylaxis, but the, um, the, the numbers are exactly the same in terms of per international unit. So it, you should be looking at something like $4.39. So if I look at, um, let me just see, 7198, I wanna get one that's an even number. Of course, I'm not gonna be able to do that. All right, so let's say 23,908 units for $195,000. Come on up. So 23,908 times $4.39, again, fiscal red line of tolerance, you should be looking at about $104,000. And uh, what did I say we were looking at? Um, $195,806. So I honestly don't recall the, um, the discount on this, um, but you can see that's well inflated above what we would want for our risk tolerance level. So unless you have a 50% discount, um, that, that anything else is gonna be uh, not get you really where you want to be in terms of what the absolute am amount you want to pay is, and it certainly does nothing for that million dollar claim. It's still only, you know, million dollar line item. It still certainly just only drops you down to the, um, you know, 500 or so thousand, which is still well in excess of the $428,000. So, um, so it's super important to make sure that you look at these hemophilia claims, not only from a, uh, from a financial perspective, but from a clinical perspective. There are a ton of newer products on the market. They are indicated for very, very specific things. It's very important that you actually make sure that it's being used and being given in the manner um, in which it's, um, it, it's supposed to be 
um, supposed to be given. So, um, so it's a little after two. Um, like I said, I didn't get through all of my uh, claims examples, but like I said, that one was the most impressive one. Um, uh, you know what? I got to show you just this one. This is this is an older claim. I'm not going to run through all of the codes, etc. The most important thing is that this is a claim that one of our clients sent to us because um, they actually had done the research. You can see the total bill charges for the various. Um, this is von Willebrand factor. Were almost four hundred thousand dollars. They called the facility, and the facility actually gave them, the pharmacy gave them what they paid for each of those, uh, for that particular drug. And I don't remember which one it is. I could look it up for you. They paid 79 cents per unit. So their cost for that drug was $6,500 for which they billed $400,000. So it's just not at all something reasonable that, that should actually be done. So you want to look at these. The financial thing is going to likely be the, the trigger for you, but you've got to make sure you look closely at how they're being given, why they're being given, the dosage, the duration, and what is going on with the, the patient. And I know that takes time because you have to pull it out of the queue. You can't just go ahead and, and pay it. But something like this where they've only paid $6,500 and you're getting billed $400,000, you know, the, the, the time, it's what, what we like to say at AMS, is the juice worth the squeeze? And in this case, the juice is definitely worth the squeeze, and you will find that in most hemophilia claims. The last question somebody had is, I may have missed it, but can we get a copy of the slides? Um, absolutely. I will, um, I will get them over to Ginny um, at Summit, and she can certainly um, distribute them to the, the folks who were on the, the webinar today. Um, my contact information is on there if you have any other questions. So I so appreciate you all joining and, and hanging with me for the, the this last hour. I really enjoyed telling you all about hemophilia, and I hope that it's been something um, educational and, and fun for you to listen to. So thank you so much. Um, Ginny, I don't know if there was anything else you wanted to say. Otherwise, I can certainly just close the, the broadcast. So um, speak now or forever hold your peace. Oh, I would just like to say thank you, Dr. Stacy. This is a complex and interesting disease that has to be looked at both clinically and financially. Um, thank everyone for attending. Evaluations will be sent to you by email, and once completed, you'll receive your continuing education certificate. And also, I will get that copy of slides. Please um, send me an email with the request for that, and I will get them to you. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.